0: Let me thank, uh, first of all, I want to thank not only the organizers, and since you've mentioned them, I won't take too much time on that, but uh, it's really, it's not just groups, but it's above all these wonderful individuals, and uh, it's very strange to see the whole, uh, having been to a number of symposia out in the Bay Area, to see so many wonderful friends and People, both members and others from that area, who've come all the way to participate here, as well as just chatting in the hall outside, people who've come just got off the point from Paris and Toronto and places like that. So, uh, uh, in the uh, text from Ibn Arabi that I've newly translated on love, yes, uh, that we'll have for the workshop tomorrow, uh, he talks about how souls are literally dying to give and to receive, and really. Uh, None of us who are involved with both these great thinkers would, uh, you know, we're tremendously indebted for you. We wouldn't really be doing it if we didn't have some venue where we could really share what we're learning and discovering. And of course, we discover it through sharing it. So uh, this is a real practice of the theory we'll be talking about in those translations tomorrow. So get on with the lecture then. It is indeed a daunting challenge to say anything serious or interestingly new in the space of 40 minutes about two such remarkable figures as Rumi and Ibn Arabi. And I note that most of my colleagues, to judge by their announced lecture titles, seem to have prudently sidestepped that particular test. In any event, whether you happen to be more familiar at this point with one or the other of these incomparable mystic poet philosophers, I hope that your familiarity with their writings will allow you to fill out an argument that I can only sketch here at the beginning in the most general possible terms. The aim of this opening talk is simply to point to certain guiding concerns and perspectives that are shared by both these artists. Perspectives which are happily subsumed in the multifaceted Arabic technical term, taqiq, or realization, that was particularly favored by Ibn Arabi and the long line of his later interpreters who call themselves Mahakakun, people of Takiq. And in examining this subject, we can hopefully suggest something of the unique comprehensiveness and proven effectiveness of Rumi's and Ibn Arabi's writings in supporting that wider human task of realization. Let me start here with a story. A year ago at the Society's Symposium in Berkeley, I was speaking of Ibn Arabi's far-reaching understanding of the implications of the central Quranic theme of divine and human calling and response, which is briefly summarized in the following very brief excerpts from the Futuhat, chapter 519. For, this is Ibn Arabi then. For all of existence is God's words, and the divine promptings that reach our soul, the waradat, are all of them messengers from God's presence. That is how they are experienced by the knowers of and through God. Since for them, every speaker is nothing but God, and every saying is a new knowing of God. Therefore, everything that is changing and shifting in the world is a divine messenger, whatever that motion and change may be. So the knower looks out for what is brought about through its motion and change, and from that he seeks to draw the benefit of a knowing that he did not have before So the whole world for the knower is a messenger from God to him or her. And that messenger and his message, I mean the whole world, with respect to that knower, is nothing but a loving mercy, a rahmah, because the messengers are only sent as a loving mercy. Most of our discussion there, of course, involved the essential element of all takik, eliciting and examining more closely the actual life situations and experiences that alone make such grand metaphysical lessons and their underlying complex of related Quranic verses, hadith, and tradition something real and actively transforming in each person's life. One of the most revealing moments in that discussion was when an listener objected afterwards. I think I understand what he's talking about, Ibn Arabi, on the level of my daily life and experience, but what does a sheikh mean by this insan kamil, the complete human being or Mohammedan reality that he was talking about in other parts of the text we were talking about? The latter being a familiar technical term and symbol referring to the cosmic reality he calls the messenger or message in the short passage I just quoted. So as I was wrestling in my mind with how to answer this question about the hakika Mohammediyah, a subject which would minimally require a whole lecture hour of its own at least, when I suddenly realized that there was really no need to take this up at all, since the realized awareness of the ongoing interplay of ethical and spiritual signs and the challenges of our responses in the course of everyday life is the reality that concerns Ibn Arabi, not the complex, now unfamiliar, symbolic and scriptural apparatus that was meant to help point his initial audiences back in that direction of what is real. For in its most basic terms, the process of taqiq as it underlies the writings of both Ibn Arabi and Rumi, can be described very simply. If we shift our focus from the realized state of the rare knowers mentioned in the short passage just quoted, to a more inclusive description of all human beings, we can say that everyone's life in this school of earthly existence is a dynamic cycle of lessons beginning with each day's signs and learning situations Moving on to our initial attentive reflections, Tafakur, Fakur, to in Quranic language, and leading eventually either illuminated insight to ta'akul and basir and awareness, barafa, or to more problematic outcomes, all of them requiring active responses that themselves lead directly to new signs and unfamiliar situations. Now as scholars, teachers, interpreters, or performers of Rumi and Ibn Arabi or their peers, It is very easy to ignore or to take for granted the fundamental role in this process of realization of elements and actors that are simply given in the universal human situation and which provide both the context and the motor for the entire process of realization. All of them prior to the intervention of guides, writings, arts, rituals, religions, or any of the other limited cultural instruments that we tend to focus on as supposedly critical elements in this process. Since the transcultural and their millennial influence and effectiveness of our two writers is surely connected to their remarkable artistic and rhetorical ability to engage the enormous spectrum of each of these given human elements of the process of taqiq of realization, it may help to start by listing some of the most important of these basic predestined elements of what they would call taqdir or qadr in each person's unique personal equation of realization, I've just put down five here. We could subdivide them at at infinitum, but these will suffice. First, the diversity of both inner and outer circumstances of character, personality types, and so on, and of individual karmic antecedents, of what they call sawabic or anaya. Secondly, the spectrum of relevant individual capacities and inner obstacles or veils with regard to intellect, will, understanding, heart, motivation, and so on. Third, the range of available social and cultural supportive resources, spiritual pathways, guides, methods, and so on. Fourthly, the corresponding diversity of life's own lessons, intrinsic lessons, challenges, difficulties, and tests. And fifth, the initially mysterious or even arbitrary, seemingly arbitrary, interventions of grace, of unexpected illumination and motivation, including above all the radically transforming power of love, familiar to all of Rumi's students and equally highlighted in the key passages of Ibn Arabi that we have translated for tomorrow afternoon's seminar. Against that backdrop, it should be easier to recognize and acknowledge the very limited effective role of writings and of other artistic tools and spiritual methods, or indeed even of experienced guides and devoted companions. Since our ego, or the Basharic intellect in the language of these two authors, Avidly recognizes, whether in its reflections on spiritual practice, experience, or contemplation, for the most part, only what it already self-confidently knows, and is only too readily sidetracked in addition by imagination and others' distractions, how can writings help us to go beyond it, to open up and to discover what our minds ordinarily refuse to even acknowledge and admit? If we had more time, one obvious answer to that question would be to examine the fundamental transformational role of music, or better, of vicar in all its forms, which I am very happy to see play such a prominent and fitting role in this particular gathering. And again, if time permitted, it would be most helpful to highlight the ways that the multidimensional modern art of cinema often comes closest to recreating the methods and intentions of both these extraordinary artists. But keeping our focus for now on the writings of these two authors, it is helpful in order to appreciate the unique comprehensiveness of both Rumi and Ibn Arabi simply to identify the the specific effective roles in this vast process of realization of some of the very different forms of earlier spiritual literature, which are so constantly integrated in their works. I think I've again mentioned nine here, one I could have gone on, but uh, these are important ones. these are all integrated in all of their writings, but uh, as you, for those of you who know other Islamic spiritual literature, you recognize uh, different exemplars of each of those, which I don't have time to mention here. First of all, these are the actual spiritual roles of the writings, though. Inspiring and motivating listeners in very different personal testing situations. For example, the role of stories, especially hagiographies and the like. Secondly, awakening the awareness, uh, awareness of and helping us to avoid hidden spiritual pitfalls and dangers. Third, contextualizing or situating where we are momentarily in the much larger path of realization. These would be books in the spiritual stages and stations, eschatology and the like. Fourth, sensitizing and expanding our awareness of the omnipresent divine signs and their implications, of our possible responses and of the engagements that always flow from them. Fifth, reminding us of forgotten or neglected elements and factors in our own situation and daily challenges. Sixth, learning to effectively communicate and share the fruits of our own lessons and our own drama of realization. Seventh, guiding reflection in the search for understanding and suggesting possible or unsuspected meanings. Eighth, helping to recognize and heal all the different wounds and misapprehensions arising throughout this process where our failures are often, or almost always, our most memorable teacher. And finally, acting as a spiritual catalyst in revealing and supporting our ongoing engagement with the inherent mystery of our actual realization of the meanings of our signs. Now, for those unfamiliar with the historical background of our two authors and the literatures that had emerged by their time intended to fulfill all these different roles, we might start by noting how nearly contemporary and often geographically close, both men often were. And as a result, how much they shared in terms of their wider educational background and profound familiarity with all the contemporary schools of Islamic thought and disciplines of spiritual guidance that had developed by their time. All this, this commonality, despite the obvious inter- difference in their eventual languages of artistic expression, which in turn can make them seem so dramatically different in their effects and demands on readers approaching them today in English or other Western translations. The fact that one was a uniquely hermetic poet turned her religious teacher and the other a religious scholar turned poet should not obscure the deep common ground of reading, learning, and practical spiritual formation they both largely shared. In any event, a comparison with the preceding Islamic literatures related to each of these above-mentioned spiritual functions apart from the Quran itself, immediately highlights the very different ways that both these authors managed to maintain an inclusiveness and comprehensive presence of all these spiritual functions at the same time. And in that context, we cannot avoid at least mentioning here the equally impressive artistry of Hafez of Shiraz, who was in so many ways the perfect synthesis and marriage of both Rumi and Ibn Arabi. The result of that compression and presence of all these spiritual functions is that their writing in many ways mirrors the actual presence of a living spiritual master, since it typically remains intimately connected, for all of us, to some momentarily active, existential dimension of the process of realization in each of their readers or listeners, and in ways that can make these texts often seem entirely new at each rereading, because we ourselves are tuned in to different forms and issues of realization at each point in our lives, I'm uh, reminded, uh, I wonder, if you come into our bedroom, there are all these piles of Rumi books <laughs> on either side of the bed. How many people here have a, have a few volumes of Rumi somewhere? <laughs> See, <laughs> I didn't think we were alone in that, but I didn't realize how, how, how common we are that way, but I, but I thought of how it's new every time you pick it up. and read it. it sounds like a lot of people have that experience. Other readers, speakers will take up some of these very different rhetorical dimensions of our authors. And the translated selections from the Futuhat dealing with love that we have brought for our workshop tomorrow, something different than the one that was announced, provide a marvelous illustration of their rare ability to engage existentially every reader at whatever stage they may find themselves in the paths of realization. So without that point of direct engagement with the dramatic process of realization in each reader, what these poets call Sir al-Qadr, the unsolved mystery novel of each soul's ultimate destiny, Without that point of engagement, writings with any of the above-mentioned spiritual purposes, whether drawn from Islamic or any other historical context, can understandably seem remote, theoretical, abstract, artificially systematic, idiosyncratic, or simply boringly pedagogical. But none of this need remain mysterious or academic. It suffices to sit down regularly and begin to read and discuss either author, together with a small, interested, and committed group of seekers over the years. There, all these varied influences and effects will quickly become clear in their visible and lasting impact in the other participants, which is often much easier to perceive than in one's own life. So where do we find ourselves in the midst of this, and where do we turn? As each of these authors constantly reminds us, there are three inseparable dimensions of each human soul's spiraling mirage of realization. Knowledge and action, manama, and the mysterious conveying power of love, of the inner seeking and determination that makes both knowing and right action possible and keeps them alive even in the midst of even the most painfully evident outward futility and incompletion of mortal life. The long concluding section of Rumi's Masnavi, two contrasting accounts of three highly symbolic brothers, which we must conflate here, my apologies to the Rumi scholars in the audience, provide a richly memorable version of Plato's unforgettable image in the Phaedrus of the spirit's heavenly ascension drawn by the two winged steeds of the soul and intellect, Nafs and Akh. As in the Masnavi's opening tale of the king and his earthly beloved, Rumi concludes here with another dramatization of three different human approaches to life's intrinsic suffering and to the tragic futility and comple- incompletion of all earthly loves. Together, all the preceding books of this Masnavi demonstrate how these three perspectives should rightfully work together. His unifying theme here at the close of book six of the entire Masnavi is the contrast of divine and human cunning or uh, our unconscious calculations about our place in the world, makar, in responding to all the challenges and insecurities of life's challenges, of of life's dilemmas of realization. The first two princesses here are emblematic of two inescapable but one-sided and profoundly short-sighted tricks we all use at various times to try to avoid or short circuit the inherent sufferings, transformations, and uncertainties of love. Two attempts to penetrate the mystery of destiny, this mystery novel, Sir al-Qadr, to solve the apparent injustices of suffering without the time, endurance, and inner attentiveness, quickness, and active searching that are bound together in the untranslatable translatable Quranic expression of sabr. Thus the oldest prince boldly chooses a voluntary death, a passionate sacrifice to love, in which he is momentarily redeemed by the king, king of China, actually, but without any recourse to the human intellect, to akhlerim, or to the soul's transforming work of creating and discovering beauty, Isan, which always depends on sabr. So in Rumi's final summation or testament to wasiya at the very end of this book, this is the unreflective, simple brother who simply relies on what is properly said and believed by his community. But Rumi's own response to his choice he is too long uh, to, to this choice of the sacrifice to love. He is too long illustrations of divine cunning, indicating that there is really no substitute in the path of realization, for all the painful tests and revelations of desire and its concomitant suffering. In contrast, the middle brother, like the younger prechamps Rumi, is a devoted master of our necessarily very partial intellect, and his accumulated worldly knowledge happily finding refuge in the royal company and patronage, patronage, like Rumi and his own father. But without the humbling role of love and the sober it requires of us, he also is inevitably the victim of pride, pretension, and self-delusion, so that he must die and start all over. In the mestre final conclusion, he is the second brother who takes his time and cautiously digs deeply, but in the end still relies on what others have said, in this case, his own mother. The third, almost invisible and lazy brother, the embodiment of realized ego of surrender of Nisti, is the one who lets the real act and teach, teach us the interrelated, ultimate human perfections of Taslim, Tawakul, rida, Raza, and Sabr, who lets both steeds, both love and the purified intellect, Ishq and Akl, be guided by the spirit's charioteer, leading through the purification and illumination of suffering, to divine guidance and wisdom. Paradoxically, through sabr rather than self-sacrifice, he is the one whose realization is complete, who wins in the end both the form and the spiritual meaning of human life, the surat and the mana. These are Rumi's last words in testament at the very end of the Masnavi, asking us paradoxically, how do we ever know God's side of this story? We as he said at the very beginning, all sides of love lead back to him. They're really the same, these last words are really the same as in Arabi's dense words about, about the true knowers with which we began tonight. Keeping in mind that the beloved before whom we all sit is in reality every facet of the ever renewed gift of creation. I won't read the Persian, the English tonight. So I sit before him in silence. I make Sabra a ladder toward the ascending stairs of heaven so that Sabra brings the key to bliss. So if, in his presence, there should birth forth from my heart a communion, a mantik, the soul's shared silent word, beyond this joy and sadness, I know that he sent that to me from the innermost self, the Damir, like Sohail illuminating Yemen. In my heart, that word is from that auspicious side, Because there is a window between heart and heart. Thank you.